Hey, what's up, everyone? My name is Josh Cuellar. It's really good to see each and every one of you here today. Thank you for worshiping with us online as well. Um, I have this awesome opportunity to preach today. It's something I don't get to do very often, so if you're a guest here today, just come back next week. Our uh, senior pastor, David, will be back. Like, don't worry about it. Don't make a judgment call based on this week. Um, but I'm actually really excited to be here. Uh, this is one of my favorite things I get to do. So I serve here on staff as Next Gen and Assimilation Pastor. I've been on staff six years, which is awesome. And um, I'm married to Sarah. We've been married six years. And we have a three-year-old son named Atlas. And so I call him our three-nager because he has the attitude of a teenager in a bite-sized package. And that's really fun. Um, but we love him. So that's a little bit about me. So we're finished up a sermon series last week uh, called God Gave Them to You, Guard Their Heart. And it was a sermon series where we talked about how we're all created in the image of God. Uh, we talked about marriages and parenting and families. And if you missed some of that, I would encourage you to go back to look at that. And like I said, next week, Pastor's going to be back, and he's going to be talking about uh, Samuel in a series titled Kingmaker. So you don't want to miss that. So this is kind of a bonus sermon, I guess you could say. It's kind of like an after-credit scene at a Marvel movie. <laughs> But instead of uh, I patch Samuel L. Jackson assembling the Avengers, you just have uh, Josh Quay, our college pastor, talking about the Gospel of John. So, yeah. all right. So, <laughs> wow, that was unnecessary. Thank you. <laughs> all right. So this is a title uh, of our sermon is Jesus Moved Toward the Mess. Jesus Moved Toward the Mess. We're going to be looking at the Gospel of John, like I said. And the first chapter of John, verse 14 and turn there in your Bibles, your smart devices. It's also going to come up on the screen. It says this, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So in the rest of our time here today, I just want to kind of talk about what that means, the truth that this teaches us. And then I'm going to give us, a, hopefully, some handles, some application to take home and just a practice to do. So John, first of all, was there with Jesus when he lived and taught and did ministry on the earth. In fact, in another one of his writings in the epistle of 1 John, he would say that he was there, what we have heard, what we have seen, what we have felt with our own hands, this is what we're proclaiming to you, meaning that he was there with Jesus. And that's always important to remember when we talk about John. So John is a credible source when it comes to who Jesus is. And he lays out this prologue, what scholars call the prologue, in verses 1 through 18 of John. And it's just, I would encourage you some point today, maybe not right now while I'm talking, but afterwards, go look at that, read that, and it's just full of great truths. In it, we see how the Word, which is Jesus, became flesh, like we're going to talk about, but he was there and active, participating in creation, that the Word, Jesus, is God, and that those who believe in him, God has given the right to become children of God. So that's like a real quick summary up until this point. So verse 14, though, says the word, uh, which is Jesus, became flesh. If I could just kind of paraphrase for this, this for us, I would say God became a human. God became a human. This is what we call in church circles the incarnation. And it's one of the foundational parts of what we believe. It's one of those pillars that if we get this wrong, we are at risk of getting everything else wrong, including like you can't have the resurrection, you can't have Jesus dying on the cross without him coming in the first place. So it's really important we get this right. And there's a couple of missteps that people make when it comes to the fact that God became a human. And one of them is that Jesus just appeared to be human. 
that it's kind of like he became human in the way that our kids become superheroes on Halloween. He put on a costume. And if you're my son, he's really into Lego Batman, and he might become Lego Batman in Halloween. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about Jesus, God, truly, fully becoming a human. So it's important we get that right. Another misstep would be that Jesus was some kind of mixture of the two. Kind of like if when you take red Play-Doh and blue Play-Doh, a lot of my analogies are gonna be about kids, sorry, I'm just, <laughs> I don't know. But you take red Play-Doh, you take blue Play-Doh, and you mix it together, and it's no longer red, it's no longer blue, it's some kind of mixture of the two. And some people believe wrongly that that's what Jesus did, that he became some kind of mixture of the two. But John and Jesus himself would say, no, that that's not the case, that he came fully human and fully God, all right? God did not become some mixture of the two, but maintained his godness in full while taking on full humanity. This means Jesus experienced humanity and life, what it means to be human to its full extent. This is really a cool thing for us because it means that And if you were to read the rest of the Gospel of John, that Jesus cried, that he wept, that he experienced grief and loss. It means that he also experienced joy and celebration and those exuberant feelings that we have sometimes. But as the writer of Hebrews said, he did that without sin. He did that without sin. So God became human. Jesus became uh, full humanity, fullness of humanity. And John would write, he made his dwelling among us. He made his dwelling among us. And so this is an important thing. Uh, The pastor and author, Eugene Peterson, paraphrased it. He moved into our neighborhood. And I like that because it kind of talks about the closeness that the incarnation gave to us, that Jesus, God in the flesh, came close to us. But I think it really misses a lot of what John's trying to communicate here. John, in his writing, is drawing a straight line back to the Old Testament when he says, that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. John is drawing a straight line back to what is called uh, the tabernacle, when God's presence, when God's people would build a tent and God's presence would just dwell with them. It's what uh, is said in Exodus 33 when, when it talks of Moses, that the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. So John is saying like, as awesome as that was, as cool as that was, something bigger and better is here in Jesus Christ. It's as if now we, in Jesus Christ, can speak to God as a friend, all right? So that's what it means that he made his dwelling among us. And God becoming a human and Jesus moving toward the mess that is humanity means that if you've seen Jesus, you've seen God. This is really important for us because we want to know what God is like. That's like one of those deep soul level questions that keep you up at night. And um, a lot of people will ask themselves, is there a God, first of all? We want to know, is there a God? And if there is a God, well, what is he like? And Jesus answers those two questions for us in his revealing of himself. So if you've seen Jesus, you've seen God. John writes this, we've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father. And just real quick, glory is this idea of of just the awesomeness. It has to do with the name, but not like in name that my name is Joshua, but it has more to do with who you are 
what you've done, your characteristics. So when it, we talk about the glory of Jesus or the glory of God, we're talking about his awesomeness in the truest sense of the word, his holiness, his splendor, and all these things. And so when we've seen Jesus, we've seen the glory of God. You can think of it sort of like this, uh, when an NBA team, MLB team, NFL team wins their championship, They'll come home to their home city and they'll throw a parade and there's confetti and there's loud music and they're celebrating and they are glorying in the team, in what they've done and who they are. So in a similar way, God is saying that we've seen the glory of Jesus. We've seen who he is, what he's done for us. And it's the glory of the one and only son. Your scriptures may read only begotten son, and then again, there's some missteps that we gotta be careful in navigating this because only begotten can make it seem in a cursory reading as some people wrongly believe that, that Jesus um, was created, that he was begotten, meaning that he was created at some point after God existing eternally. And this is not true. You can look back just a couple verses before when uh, John writes in the first verse that he, the word was with God and the word was God and that he was there at creation. So it's not that Jesus was created, but the one and only son instead means that it's just speaking to his uniqueness, the uniqueness of Jesus. The fact that there never was someone like Jesus, there never is and never will be someone like Jesus, that he is one of a kind, one and only. So again, we ask these big questions, what God is like, um, and if there is a God, how can I know him? And here's Jesus showing us what God is like and how to know him. So that should lead us to another question, I believe. What was Jesus like when he lived here on earth? What was he like? How did he deal with people as he walked earth some 2,000 years ago? And John would write, John would say, Jesus' life and his teachings are full of grace and truth. Jesus came in the fullness of grace and truth. And again, it's not like we run the risk, if we're honest with ourselves, that we have grace on one side and truth on the other, and we need to find some balance of the two. Or maybe we need to meet in the middle, taking some grace and some truth. John is saying that Jesus came in the fullness of both, yes, grace and truth together. So it's not some compromise or some balance. That's not a New Testament idea. The fullness of grace and truth. But it's important, I think, we throw out those terms, grace and truth, without really understanding what Scripture is talking about when they talk about grace and truth. So take a few seconds to kind of define that. This word grace is very closely related to another Old Testament word that is translated often loving kindness. There's a really kind of old school way of talking about God's just covenantal love with his people. And if you can think about the Old Testament, if you've been around church for any amount of time or you've read the scriptures yourself, you can think of time and time again where God's people promised one thing and did another. And so the grace aspect comes in in that God is showing them love and kindness and mercy time and time again, even though they're promising one thing and delivering on another. That's what grace is. If I could put it this way, grace is the way that God relates positively in love to sinners like you and I. 
rather than giving them what they deserve. So there's this exchange happening, right? We deserve one thing. We deserve um, God's wrath, his judgment, and then in the grace of God that's most clearly defined in Jesus Christ, we receive goodness and love and kindness. And so if you look, if you were to just take a quick survey of Jesus' interactions with others in his life and in his teachings, you would see this over and over again where Jesus showed grace. And it's closely related to his love. Um, And if I could offer this definition of love, it's self-sacrificially wanting and acting for the ultimate good of someone else. And then that ultimate good being defined by God. So Jesus and his life and teachings are full of grace, but he's also full of truth. Again, not some mixture or balance between the two, but fullness of grace, fullness of truth. So let's take a look quick at what truth is. And again, I'm not a philosopher. I don't claim to be. You might have a much better definition based on the scriptures of what truth is, and I'd love to hear that. But here's my working definition of what truth is. It's an explanation of things that matches reality. All right? Truth is an explanation of things that match reality. So for example, we could say that the chairs we're sitting in, that you're sitting in right now, are hot pink and fuzzy, and they squeak when you sit down in them. But that doesn't match reality. They are gray, they're not fuzzy, and hopefully they didn't squeak when you sat in it. I don't know what that would mean if it did. (laughs) But truth is an explanation, an idea of how things work that matches reality. So Jesus coming in the fullness of truth means that he understands ultimate reality and how things are, how they operate and how they should be, and how they work better than anyone that's set foot on this planet. And if that's true, which we believe it is, if that's reality, then we need to listen and pay attention to what Jesus teaches, and we need to obey it. Because he's coming to us as one with authority. See, Jesus didn't come to earth just as one who had, like, good ideas of how to achieve the good life. Or he didn't come as a self-help guru to help us kind of self-actualize our dreams and passions. Jesus came as king, and he came as Lord, authority as one who truly understands how things operate. Jesus was there at creation. He was active and participating as part of the Godhead, as part of Trinity in creation, and he knows how things should work best. Like if I were to create the best taco, like objectively the best taco, it would be fresh corn tortillas, and it would have like al pastor, many meat, have grilled pineapple, maybe a little bit of onions and red chili salsa, and it would just be bomb. It would be so good. And you might come at me and you might say like, actually, your taco's pretty good, but like, I think actually paste salsa, chunky, katina style is gonna be better on it. Or actually, you might just reject the whole idea and say that Taco Bell has the best tacos. Oh yeah, that's hard for a New Mexican to hear. Either way, we're not living into the reality of what a taco should be and what it should be like. So here comes the issue for you and I, because tacos are one thing, they're really kind of, we have different tastes on tacos, and that's okay. But it comes to an entirely different thing when we talk about relationships, the things we've been talking about, marriage, family, uh, how we interact with our coworkers, our managers. And so we all, though, have an idea of how those should work. 
And so if they're true, then they'll align with God's will and what he's shown us. If they're false, there's going to be some disconnect. It's that paste salsa, right? Something that really helped me understand this, and I hope it's helpful for you. If it's not helpful, just throw it out and whatever. But if it's helpful, uh, like it has been for me, is this idea of mental maps. And it's used in therapy and counseling, if you're familiar with that. It's the same idea that Brian talked about a couple weeks ago, worldview. That's a sociological term, worldview. Uh, mental maps, I kind of like it, because we understand it. You, if you've been coming to this church for any amount of time, or think of your favorite cafe, favorite place to get coffee, the gym you frequent, um, you just know how to get there. You're not pulling out your phone and Googling your favorite gym you go to every morning. You just go, you exit your driveway, you turn right, then you turn left on the main street and right again, right again, and then you're there. You just know, you don't have to have a map in front of you. So we have a mental map of those things. But like I said before, we also have mental maps of how relationships should work, how sexuality and gender should work, how uh, marriages should work, how families, how our relationships to communities and to our nation and to the world should work. And unfortunately for you and I, some of those times those mental maps don't match up to Christ's truth. Or to put it another way, they're lies. All right, so part of what we do as Christians, is to submit ourselves under the authority of Jesus, the lordship of Jesus Christ. And here's the good thing, though. He understands ultimate reality. So it's actually a good thing for us to do this. This is how we best work as humans. And the New Testament word discipleship, then, is that process in which, by the grace of God and the help of his Holy Spirit, we change our mental maps to align to Jesus' truth. All right, so again, hopefully that's helpful. And if it's not, just forget it. <laughs> so Jesus lived a life full of grace and truth. And this is important for us because this is him showing us who God is when he became a human. And so as Jesus followers, which is what a Christian is, if you didn't know that, simply put, if you're a Christian in here today, you are a follower of Jesus. You should think, act, and experience emotion like Jesus Christ. And if that's true, then how should this change the way we live? How should all we've talked about, the fact that the word became flesh, that he made his dwelling among us, that Jesus Christ was the fullness of grace and truth, how should this change the way we live? I think the first way it changes the way we live is that as Jesus moved toward the mess, we move towards the mess as well. We move towards the mess. For Christ followers in here today, listening online, we need to make moves in relationship towards the mess of people. It means moving towards people who think differently and act differently than us, and doing this in order to love them, to share the truth with them, to show them grace. Like life gets messy, you don't have to look very far to understand that. You don't have to look on the news or in your news feed on social media to understand that. We just have to pause long enough to be alone with our thoughts to understand that life gets messy, right? Like people are wrong about things. Uh, the wrong people get things wrong. Like they're wrong about things. And the 
people wronging us uh, just keep getting it wrong, wrongly, wrong. And it would be wrong of us to think that we could escape this life without moving towards a mess, all right? So, when there are tensions, and there will be tensions, if you've lived life for any amount of time, close proximity with someone, you understand there's gonna be conflict, there's gonna be tensions, and when there are tensions in any relationship, the temptation, the, the bent of our hearts, the natural f- tug of it is to move away from those around us, to build up walls of separation, and to just not deal with it. However, the seriously following Jesus most often means that we move towards the mess, not away from it. And Jesus gave this example fully in him becoming human and moving towards humanity, not when we had it all together, not when we had figured out what we believe fully or were good people, but that while we are still sinners in the language of Paul, Christ died for us, while we are still sinners. So moving towards the mess means taking Jesus seriously at his word. When he he commands things like the Great Commission, go and make disciples of all nations. And taking him seriously when he shows us when he kind of distills down his commandments to two commandments, what we call the great commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. This is gonna require us to move towards the mess of the people around us. It may mean being vulnerable, and being vulnerable always has a risk of getting hurt. It may mean that um, we need to figure out as Christians, what it would mean to live in a pluralistic society where people have differently, strongly held beliefs that are in opposition to each other. And it definitely means for us, followers of Jesus, navigating a world where we don't compromise on grace or compromise on truth. Simply put, it's gonna get a little messy. It's gonna be difficult. But the truth is, all of our lives are a little bit messy. Again, if we just pause and we're honest enough with ourselves, there's not just mess out there, there's mess in here. And Jesus, fully acknowledging and knowing that mess, moved towards you in love. So we should be willing to do the same for others. So what would it look like then for us Christ followers to move towards the messiness in the world? Uh, I think it means that we would try to live lives that are full of grace and truth. Just imitating Jesus, right? Just trying to be like him, live lives that are full of grace and truth. So we seek to show grace to everyone we come into contact with, everyone. Grace, again, by definition, means that you don't deserve my relating to you positively, my love to you. That's what grace is. It's not, so moving towards others in grace means that we do that preemptively. We don't have to wait until they have their lives together, till they're believing all the right things. We preemptively move towards them in love to show them grace. It means we handle disagreements and and conflicts differently than the world apart from Jesus Christ handles disagreements. That might mean uh, you be about the relationship more than you are about winning arguments. It takes intense humility to do this. Like This is a tall order for myself as well. And it ultimately means loving the people around us, which in the New Testament definition means self-sacrificially seeking the good and the ultimate good defined by God for those around us. 
There's this guy, uh, actually this quote rather, that's attributed to a theologian in the third century. You might not care about that, Augustine. Don't remember that name because it, he didn't even say it. <laughs> it was this other guy, and his name was Rupertus Meldinius, who was a Slytherin, if I ever heard of one. I mean, Rupertus Meldinius definitely has a green scarf and speaks parcel tongue. If you don't get that reference, ask your kid or grandkid, sorry. All right, so Rupertus, though, says this, and I think this is really helpful for us as we try to navigate how to live life showing grace to everyone we come into contact with, specifically in relation to God's truth as well. He says, in essentials, those things that we have a closed fist about as Christians, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In those things that really matter to us, but don't ultimately matter, they're not essential, show liberty, show, like, we can disagree on those things. And in all things, charity. That English word charity has a similar root to the Greek word for grace. So it could be said, in all things, show grace. All right? So in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, grace. Last thing I want to share with you guys is we seek to share truth with everyone we come into contact with. We seek to share truth with everyone we come into contact with. I think the story from the gospel is one of them. I mean, again, if we just took a survey of Jesus' life and interactions with people, every one of them would contain some element, I believe, of grace and truth. But the one that really stands out to me is how Jesus interacted with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well. If you've been around church for an amount of time, you might have heard teachings on that. Real quick, the summary is that Jesus needed something to drink, and he went to a well, and there was a Samaritan woman there in the middle of the day, and so he asked her for a drink of water, and they get in this dialogue about truth, about God's ultimate reality. And it comes out in that dialogue that the woman doesn't have a husband, but she's still living with a man, and you can fill in the blank there. And I bet at the end of that, so we can read at the end of that, The woman walks away loving Jesus, giving her life to falling after him. And if we were to take kind of a post-game interview of the Samaritan woman after that conversation, I bet she would agree that she felt convicted, yes, by the truth, but that she felt loved and just showed grace upon grace. And that's what we want to do in our interactions with other people. We want to not shy away from the truth, especially those things that are essential to what we believe, things like the incarnation. But we also don't want to make it hard for people coming to Christ by majoring in the minors, those non-essentials, those things that really don't matter. We don't want to make it hard for people trying to come to Jesus. And the last thing, we don't want to compromise on those essentials, those truths of God that are clearly revealed. Like, it's worth it to hold on to those, to believe them yourself, to help others follow them as well. Like, don't compromise on those truths, especially those essentials. It's worth it. So we seek to show grace to everyone we come into contact with. And we seek to tell truth to everyone we come into contact with. And there are two questions I think really help this root into who I am and help me navigate the world around me. The first question is this, what does love require of me? And if you've been around FBC for any amount of time, you may have heard that question before. What does love require of me? We could even add, what does showing grace require of me? 
But what does love require of me as in a couple minutes we exit these doors and you interact with people in the commons area? What does love require of you when you get in the car and you're talking with your family and you're stressed trying to figure out where you're going to lunch? What does love require of us tomorrow morning as we show up to work and maybe we're a little bit late, I don't know. Oh, it's a holiday. Hopefully you have a holiday tomorrow. (laughs) Don't go to work if you are not supposed to. (laughs) But show up to work on Tuesday morning and we're interacting with our coworkers and our boss. What does love require of us in those moments? How can we show grace to everyone we come into contact with? The second question sort of related to truth, what can I do to help get people to Jesus? How can I share the truth, first and foremost, of the gospel of Jesus Christ? That's what people need to hear above everything else. How, what can I do to help people get to Jesus? So just think about those things yourself as you're exiting today, throughout the rest of the week, and the rest of our lives, really. You and I are gonna do this imperfectly. So I don't want you to hear this and say like, man, I'm really terrible at this. I just need to do better. The first step of anything we do for Christ is just being with Jesus first, just being with him, experiencing his grace yourself, making sure that you're believing the truth of Jesus yourself before we try to do anything else outside of ourselves. We do this imperfectly. You may be sitting there thinking your life is very messy right now as well. Well, enter Jesus Christ, fully God, fully human, into our mess, moving towards you in love, ready to show you forgiveness as you place your faith in him. We didn't read it, but the verse right after this says, from his, Jesus Christ, from Jesus's fullness, we each have received grace upon grace. And so if you've placed your faith in Jesus, if you've given your life to him, that's true of you right now. So don't get too down on yourself. In a minute, there's going to be a couple of us down here. Um, We would love to talk to you about this. If you have never given your life to Jesus, that's a place to start. Being with Jesus always precedes uh, doing for Jesus, or it should. We'd love to talk to you about what it means to give your life to Jesus. You can do that right now. You don't need to talk to one of us. If you'd like prayer for something else, if you feel like God is kind of just tugging on your heart that you feel convicted, you've compromised some way on truth or you've compromised some way in showing grace to others. We'd love to pray for you as well. If you'd like to become a member of the church, we can talk to you about that as well. If you wanna serve or be a part of a connect group, that's a lot of what I do here is in charge of those and I'd love to talk to you about those as well. Just remember that God became a human and moved towards our mess this week. So that means we can show grace and truth to others. Let's pray. God, I thank you um, just for the fact that you have sent your son, that in Jesus Christ we have forgiveness of sin, the grace. We can experience that right now. And I pray that if anyone doesn't, that they would, even as I'm talking. Uh, God, please help us in this venture of following you. Help us as we seek to just Um, change our minds, transform our minds to align with your will. And God, we need your grace in this. We can't do it alone. And we pray in Christ's name, amen.